Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition uh, podcast. This is the Phantoms edition of the podcast, and I have with me uh, Professor Ben Stenson uh, discussing the November issue of the, the journal. Um, if you'd like to say hello, Ben. Morning, everybody. So I think we're just, we, again, the, the diversity of the, the papers in the journal always um, impresses me each time we do these, Ben. Um, and this, this, is, this is no different. And in fact, um, it's perhaps a little more diverse than, than, than normal. And we've got everything from treatment thresholds and extremely preterms to uh, osteopathy, which is probably the first time that we've discussed that in, in the podcast. But to start with, uh, and following on from our previous uh, phantoms, um, some research in, in animal models in the resuscitation space. Yes. So our edit's choice this month is a randomised study in asphyxiated newborn lambs trying to um, advance our state of knowledge in relation to how we should give epinephrine. Um, and evidence for the efficacy and optimal administration of epinephrine during newborn resuscitation is really um, hard to come by because the circumstances where it's required can't be predicted and are infrequent. So it's really difficult to see how we're going to get high quality evidence in this area from newborn infants. And in this study, the protocol, broadly speaking, tried to follow the NRP resuscitation algorithm for resuscitating in the face of persisting low heart rate. And um, they did the study in newborn lambs. They had been asphyxiated to the point of cardiac arrest by having their umbilical cord clamped before delivery. And um, then to ensure that the the model reflected the... um, the kind of thing that might happen in a newborn situation. They they started um, positive pressure ventilation initially with air, and then they wound up the FI2 to 100%. And then after a further five minutes of ongoing CPR, they started administering the epinephrine, and they did it every three minutes until they had a return of spontaneous circulation. And they compared... Um, the lower and higher doses in current recommendations, but they also compared whether you flush them in with one mil of saline or with three mils of saline. And they showed that the higher dose was more effective uh, than the lower dose, and that with either dose, you got a more rapid and uh, better response if you flushed it in with the higher volume. And they discuss how when you're putting epinephrine in, into a low UBC, a mil of flush may not be enough to get it all the way through to where it's needed to do its job. And so certainly I find that influential to me in thinking about how I might administer epinephrine in the future. I think that's a very a pragmatic um, aspect of the study. Um, and it's perhaps things that people don't think about, but actually seems to be um, a, quite an a, quite a simple and quite effective means of sort of optimizing your resuscitation. That 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 can actually be done almost automatically by people around the world. So I thought that was a particularly exciting uh, uh, bit of the bit of the study, and really 
follow. Oh, sorry. No, I was I, I was going to say I'll be really interested to see how the ILCOR neonatal group look at data like this in in their recommendations. Absolutely, and I know members of ILCOR listen to this podcast and have been on this podcast, for instance. It'll be interesting if they felt like commenting, um, perhaps on Twitter. I I certainly think that there are a number of those studies that. I think, as you said, cannot be done in in humans, uh, and perhaps extrapolating like this from a well designed animal study is is something that it does worthwhile if it if it's of benefit. We then uh, move to uh, an Italian group which has looked at uh, the thermal management immediately after birth with and without servo control. It's a, a study, an RCT in in fifteen Italian tertiary hospitals in in uh, very low birth weight infants um this, I th- there are aspects of the study that is quite surprising i i'd assumed that the servo control would have worked better but i think there are perhaps uh, mitigating circumstances for that yeah well, well first of all congratulations to these neonatologists who've managed to do a, a large-ish multi-center randomized control trial during neonatal stabilization so it's really great that they've achieved that and added to the database and they're, they're looking at um, a group of babies who are known to be less than 30 plus six weeks gestation or whose estimated weight at birth is less, less than 1,500 grams and mindful of the need to reduce admission hypothermia because of its epidemiological link with adverse outcome, they're studying the best way of doing that. And all of the babies in the study went into plastic bags and various other devices like thermal mattresses were in use in some of the centers according to local preference. And the question they wanted to know was, are you better off just setting the heater manually or using servo control? And uh, like you, I was initially surprised that they showed no significant difference in um, normothermia on admission. And then thinking about it, I think that you can see logically why that might be, because in the um, manual control group, they set the, the heater to maximum. And in the servo control group, the the heater output was adjusted according to measures of temperature. And when you look at their results overall, they have a very high rate of admission hypothermia. And this affected, in actual fact, the majority of the babies in both groups and a very low rate of admission hyperthermia. So in a context where your biggest challenge is to avoid hypothermia, it makes sense that the most effective heater contribution to that would be having the heater on full all the time instead of having it not quite on full and only turning up when the temperature was going down, which is already slightly behind the game. And I guess it really just illustrates what we know, which is that getting the baby to the neonatal unit with a normal temperature is a complex dynamic process that isn't only dependent on the choice of equipment you use, but how you use it and what you do in so many other ways to to avoid heat loss. Yeah, and, and I suppose um, 
the, the control group use a number of different means of heat, heat control or prevention of heat loss uh, and uh, uh, server control perhaps uses fewer. So you're maybe um, physics is not on your side uh, in those circumstances. But still, I, I agree. The thermal management of, of very preterm babies is, is complex and it's not as easy as, as uh, people would think. And the fact that they have, this group has undertaken uh, like you say, 225, 450 neonates um, is, is, is definitely something to be um, commended. Yeah, I don't think that there was bias between groups in the other measures that they used. I think there was variation between centres in the sure, other sure that. measures, that means, if you see what I mean. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, 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 achieving admission normothermia is difficult and it requires teams to engage in good quality improvement work and these data will be a stimulus for for that work in Italy it's great absolutely uh, and then moving on to I think we alluded to this or I alluded to at the start of the of, of our introduction um, uh, osteopathy in, in neonatology it's not something we've really had in the journal before but um, I think reflects the fact that it happens it occurs and uh, studies uh, on its uh, beneficence and efficacy are important as, as anything else. Yes, and as clinicians in neonatal units, we're probably a little out of touch with the way that people in the community use complementary therapies, but we're not out of touch with the distress associated with difficulties establishing breastfeeding and the lengths to which mothers will persevere and uh, try things to get themselves out of a very, very difficult situation. So um, I was really interested by this study and also in preparing to discuss it today, the amount of interest it has generated prior to arriving in the print journal since it was published online, because it's certainly been generating discussion in other uh, fora according to the altmetric stats on it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, looking at the altmetric stats, and if people don't know what the altmetrics are, if you scroll down uh, on the web page, you will see a, a colourful almost rosette at the bottom uh, with a number on the inside. And that number is the altmetric score and uh, is derived by a number of mentions in blogs, news websites, tweets, Facebook pages, um, and uh, of interest in this, this, this paper has been discussed on a blog. In fact, there's a link to the blog and um, there's a link there to, to, to have a look at what other people are saying about the study. And it looks like from the altmetric that the majority of people who have looked at this study are from Saudi Arabia, Canada, America, South America, Northern Europe and Australia, New Zealand. So quite an interesting sort of worldwide uh, view of the of this. Uh, in the end, no benefit study, um, but definitely something that is, is interested for the fact that it's made it into the journal and driven a lot of discussion um, from that. Yes, and it's a, a blinded study. The osteopathic manipulation was undertaken behind a screen so that mothers involved 
weren't able to determine whether or not their baby had received the intervention. And um, the primary outcome was ex exclusive breastfeeding rate at one month. And um, as you say, the trial didn't show a significant benefit to the intervention. The, the numerical outcomes were 53% with um, the osteopathic manipulation and 66% without. Still an important point of discussion. Um, the other uh, uh, articles in this month's edition that have certainly uh, been of interest are an interesting study by uh, Dr. Katari and colleagues looking at time to desaturation during uh, route, I don't want to say routine, but uh, certainly planned, pre-medicated pre uh, endotracheal intubation. Yeah, and these were babies being intubated in the neonatal unit so that it's not the immediate resuscitation at birth scenario. These are babies who've already got previously recruited lungs, but have an indication for intubation. And um, they had um, video data that they could look back on and they were able to determine the, the duration of time that elapsed before the infants desaturated to below 90% and to below 80% during intubation. And um, most of the babies desaturated to, to below 90%. And that took a median of 22 seconds. So it seems pretty impossible to avoid a reasonable rate of desaturation to that degree, given that intubations generally take a little longer than that. The in infants who desaturated to below 80% took a median of 35 seconds to do so. And um, I guess it is difficult to know how you should produce guidelines for things like the recommended duration of an intubation attempt before the attempt is brought to a halt. But I think it's this kind of information that contributes to that discussion. So I was interested in the study. Yes, and, and certainly, again, with ILCOR and various resuscitation guidelines recommending time durations for that intubation should be completed in, certainly this is a good place to start to, to inform some of that practice and perhaps make some of those um, intubation attempts a bit more realistic. I agree. Uh, the the next the next uh, study that you, you mentioned it, it was something that I find interesting because it um, is it not an area that I tend to have given too much thought to. That being uh, lipid emulsion uh, as part of uh, uh, PN in in preterm infants, quite a quite quite eye opening really. Yeah, it's a really good educational review article which reviews the current evidence and the physiological reasoning behind the way people approach formulation of lipid emulsions for parental nutrition for preterm babies. And like you, I have to confess that it's not an area that I have a lot of prior knowledge in. So I found this really interesting. And in particular, I found interesting how limited the evidence is for or against the use of some of the more complex preparations that are being proposed now. So it's um, it's generated a little bit of correspondence uh, as well with further information, an interesting topic. Uh, yes, um, and uh, the, the final article um, is on treatment thresholds and it's something that we've discussed uh, with some of the authors uh, 
of of the paper uh, before, uh, and I think uh, May of last year, May 2020, uh, we uh, had a discussion with uh, Dominic uh, Wilkinson and uh, uh, Annie Jean Vier and Helen McTeer um, and um, and others uh, around the the, the BAPM guidance on perinatal management before 27 weeks and um yeah this this almost updates what's happening in in, in real life and is an interesting survey i agree this is interesting and it's a survey of what people say they would do rather than a measurement of what they actually do do but it's still interesting so as you say in in 2019 the british association of perinatal medicine updated their professional guidance for the perinatal management of birth before 27 weeks of gestation. And this was because of the emerging evidence of outcomes where in systems where babies with gestations of 22 and 23 weeks are given life-sustaining treatment and increasingly shown to have survival rates and health and quality of life rates, which are um, favourable. So it would be expected that the BAPM guidance would affect management in the UK. And um, this survey has looked at uh, attitudes of health professionals, consultants, nurse practitioners, trainee doctors, nurses involved in providing care to infants and said, what what gestation are you now willing to offer active treatment to an extremely preterm infant at parental request? And um, the majority of respondents were willing to offer active treatment from 22 weeks gestation, as you might expect from the emerging evidence, but quite a substantial minority are not. And likewise, when they looked at the highest gestation at which respondents would be willing to offer the palliative care if the family expressed a preference not to have life-sustaining treatment was around 24 weeks gestation. But that was for 59% of those surveyed, implying that a substantial minority would still offer palliative care at gestations higher than that. I guess the I mean, the data are interesting, whatever your perspective, but from my perspective, they still show what a lottery it might be for families uh, where their baby is cared for. They're, they won't get the same decision-making in the same circumstance from centre to centre. Their care will still be determined to a significant degree by the views of the individual caregivers. And obviously that's something that we should strive to work away from? I think it's still perhaps from my reading of it. And I, 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 I want to say that um, in the journal, there uh, is a PDF and a PDF and supplementary material uh, section. And the whole of the survey is laid open so that people can see how the questions are phrased and what they look like. It's a very open uh, process, as you would expect from Professor Wilkinson and the BAPM. But my reading of it, it, it still, 
you still get the impression that despite moves to risk stratification and perhaps greater improvements and experience of, of preterm babies, that there's still a, some pessimism in the neonatal community to offering this that perhaps will take more of a cultural change as, as, a, as a neonatal community, perhaps in, in the UK and beyond, uh, to overcome. I agree. And there's a lot of data out there already that shows that health professionals are more pessimistic than families about outcomes. And also that the perceived quality of life of children who are born prematurely in later life, that that perceived quality is rated lower by health professionals than by families and by the individuals themselves. And it's really important that we do our best to calibrate ourselves against the wishes and expectations of the families and babies we cared for. And as you say, move towards um, a greater understanding of what families want and uh, responding to, to, to families' wishes, uh, superseding our own our own pessimism and uh, perhaps limited experience of, of what these babies uh, have in store for the future. Ben, that was a, a very wonderful conversation and lots of wide-ranging discussions. Um, thank you very much, as always. Uh, people can get in contact with us by Twitter uh, at ADC underscore FN. My Twitter hashtag is at Jonathan underscore Davis3. Uh, Ben's is at Benson. Uh, help me out, Ben. I'm, I'm getting my You're words. right, Stenson Ben. Stenson Ben. There we go. Got it in the end. People can get the podcast through the ADC FN website on the podcast link, through SoundCloud and through your regular podcast uh, provider. And it'd be great to hear what people think of the quite broad variety of, of studies that we will be presented this month in November. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you.